I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Corey. Hi, Elise. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. 
It's summer. And we were just talking about this before we started recording, but it's very warm in the closets yeah, today. It is. I wish I had some air conditioning. I wish I had like a nice window. But alas, that's what happens when you closet podcast. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so today is exciting because we have a new topic in our Hamlet series. And uh, this one, folks, if you are familiar with Hamlet, I'm sure you're expecting it. This is one of the biggest talking points when people talk about Hamlet. And we are going to dive even further into it than you would get in your stuff to chew on. What are we going to talk about, Elise? It is antic disposition. Yay. Corey, I have a question. Yes, Elise? What is antic disposition? Ah. What do we mean when we say antic disposition? So according to Hamlet, after Hamlet has talked to the ghost, he says, quote, as I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antic disposition on, unquote. This is from Act 1, Scene 5. Hamlet reveals that from now on, he will put on an antic disposition act a little bit weird, and this will gain him access to information throughout the castle. Shakespeare doesn't really define antic disposition, so we're going to excavate what that was for Hamlet, for the characters on the stage, for early modern audiences, and maybe talk about how we can apply antic disposition today if you're putting on Hamlet. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's dive in. Let's do it. So... If you've listened to our podcast, you know that we talked about uh, mental illness, mental health, uh, intellectual and mental disability and what that looked like and meant for an individual in Shakespeare's time back when we did our King Lear series. So I do want to say that we are going to be covering some different information in this episode, even mm -hmm. though similar topic. Yes. Today, we're going to be really talking about what does it look like on stage and... Like you said, Corey, what it did for a piece of theater for an early modern audience. So, yeah, because antic disposition and madness, they do cross over on the Venn diagram, but they're not totally the same. Yeah. So you may be wondering, Elise, Corey, how does antic disposition, if Hamlet's supposed to be mad, how is this episode going to be different than that episode you did during King Lear? Well, don't worry. We are not going to be presenting that information again. If you want to listen to that and you haven't yet, go check out our episodes on mental health in early modern England and Shakespeare's influence on early psychiatry. Mm -hmm. They're great episodes. Today, we're really going to be focusing on how madness and false madness, pretend madness, were portrayed on stage and what it did for early modern playwrights, how they use this trope to convey certain things to their audience and what the early modern audience would have understood about Hamlet. Exactly. Because that's the big thing. Before we dive into the details, that is the thing that, like we said in our Stuff to Chew on, audiences, actors, directors, uh, scholars, we all have questions. Is Hamlet actually mad? If he is actually mad, when does he go mad? And mm -hmm. so this is context so that we can, especially as theater makers in 2022, have a better understanding and use this mindfully. So. Right. Better understanding of the material that we're actually dealing with. Exactly. So first things first, Hamlet is part of the early modern genre known as the revenge tragedies. And madness, real or feigned, is a very popular trope inside of that genre of revenge tragedy. When I say revenge tragedy, you can think also about Titus Andronicus. Mm -hmm. 
And as a plot device or a theatrical convention, it really helps delay the action that needs to happen during the play. In a way, the Revenger has to delay their action in order for there to be a play. Yeah. It also gives characters like Hamlet a means to safely observe the villains that they hope to eventually punish. Mm -hmm. And it provides moral ambiguity and a legal loophole for these revenging protagonists. Right. And this ambiguity and loophole helped make these revenge tragedies more palatable to the early modern audiences. That makes sense. You want to like your protagonist. Right. If you can't get behind your protagonist's mission, what are you doing? Who are you rooting for? Right. And especially in early modern England, where there was so much concern about morality, madness, real or feigned, is a convenient loophole that allowed the audience to like their protagonists or their anti-heroes. I think we would call them nowadays, Mm -hmm. the Walter Whites, the Don Drapers. It allowed them to not condemn outright the actions of the protagonist of the play. Exactly. I can see where they're coming from. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Right. And then also within the revenge tragedy, there is a moment where, especially for the protagonists like Hamlet who are pretending to be mad, they drop the facade at the end about the time that they are committing their revenge. They either drop it or they become truly mad. Hmm. And... In Hamlet, we actually see him drop it and become coherent during the fencing scene. Yeah. What this allows, says Lindsay Rowe Haveld in their chapter, Antic Dispositions, Mental and Intellectual Disabilities in Early Modern Revenge Tragedy, which is part of Recovering Disability in Early Modern England, edited by Alison P. Hopgood and David Houston Wood, quote, Through the inclusion and eventual elimination of disability, mad avengers are protected from the guilt of the violence they enact while mad villain's guilt is affirmed and the violent ends they meet are justified, unquote. Mm. That also makes me think about Hamlet's relationship to Laertes because he, mm-hmm. whether he drops it or not outright, he acknowledges the madness as Hamlet's enemy as well. And that right. might be a device to have the two of them reconcile over Polonius and Ophelia. They share a common enemy. Exactly. Revenge tragedies also fixate on that sort of duality of guilty, not guilty, and innocence through their use of mental disability. Mm. In early modern culture, mental disabilities generally went unlabeled until there was a threat of violence, Mm. either to the person or the general peace. Claudius references this potential for violence when he says in 3.3, quote, I like it not, nor stands it safe with us to let his madness rage, unquote. This is before Polonius's death. Right. And then once Polonius has been slain, then it's like, we got to get him out of here. Right. We got to get him out of here. We got we to gotta remove him from Denmark. Yeah. At the same time, early modern individuals believed that while capable of violence, individuals with intellectual or mental disabilities could not be guilty of that violence. Okay. In fact, innocent was an early modern euphemism for intellectual and mental disabilities a term that implied both a purity that would not entertain violence as well as a lack of responsibility for any personal harm that might occur. Okay. So using antidisposition, madness, intellectual or mental disability as a trope, in this article argues, heightens the central question in revenge tragedies for the early modern audience from will he or won't he to, quote, will he be too innocent to commit the required vengeance? Or will he be so guiltily enraged that he would be unable to stop himself from killing even if he wanted to, unquote. Mm. And Hamlet does mention in Act 3, after the play, within a play, 
he mentions that he now has the ability to follow through with this revenge. So in that moment, if you're an early modern audience, that'd be the moment where he's like on the Mm -hmm. side of guilty. Yeah. I mean, they also believe that madness was a state that someone could return from and the things that someone did while they were mad would it fall into this category of, well, they were mad, so they were innocent. So pretending to be mad was an excellent alibi for committing revenge. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of a gray area there. And it's interesting to contrast to, like, that a villain in a revenge tragedy may go mad, but they go mad because of their actions, whereas the heroes in a revenge tragedy go mad or pretend to be mad temporarily in order to aid and abet their actions. Got it. And on stage, madness or mental disabilities are given visual cues, even though, as disabilities, they are often invisible. Mm -hmm. For example, madmen wear few clothes or none at all. They have wild, unkempt hair or are entirely bald. There's often a stage direction included in Hamlet that Ophelia enters with her hair down. Mm -hmm. They carry a weapon, usually a club. And it's interesting to contrast this with like the fool's traditional motley So they're very visibly different from the fool. Right. And this contrast of eye-catching costume and invisible disability also works well within revenge tragedies, which, again, kind of focus on, we see this theme in Hamlet, uncovering the unseen. This disguise of disability also allows revengers to establish proof of guilt before enacting their revenge. Again, like, they're delaying the eventual end, but as a plot device, it allows them time to... Do things like stage a whole play to establish guilt, right. to confirm guilt. Add in right? some subplots, perhaps. Yeah, they can confirm the guilt of their victim while also avoiding suspicion of other people around them that they are looking to enact revenge. Okay. To use Titus as an example, Titus also does not enact his revenge until he finds a way for his daughter to communicate the crimes that were committed against her. Harmed her. Again, this is a, in stark contrast to the madness of villains. Villains' madness stems from their actions, and heroes' madness masks theirs. Madness is a manifestation of a villain's guilt, yeah. think Macbeth, while it simultaneously allows for the hero to escape guilt. Mm-hmm. Again, that duality is something that early modern audiences were really interested in, and that's what they really liked about revenge tragedies was this sort of like, are they guilty? Aren't they guilty? Are they guilty? Yeah. Aren't they guilty? And like we talked about in Stuff to Chew on, Hamlet is a play that deals a lot in those sort of ambiguities. Mm -hmm. I do want to quickly note that not all revenge tragedies feature madness, but it is a very common trope, not just in Shakespeare, but other early modern playwrights use this as well. Yeah, it's very useful. Well, we're a Shakespeare podcast. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of how in general madness or intellectual and mental disability function for early modern playwrights on stage. But let's dive a little bit deeper into Hamlet specifically with defining Hamlet's antic Antic disposition. disposition. Mm -hmm. Corey? So uh, staying with the 1600s, the early modern era, in the 1600s, Hamlet was seen, according to 20th century historian Paul S. Conklin, as a malcontent. And a malcontent is a malady that's between melancholy and madness. Those are two words also that are used to describe Hamlet and his actions. Is he melancholic? Is he mad? Malcontent is in between. The controversy about Hamlet's insanity seems to have started in 1778 by a Dr. Ackenside 
With the advent of modern psychiatry, psychiatrists try to diagnose Hamlet, but we are not going to do that right now. We are going to look at madness and antidisposition in Hamlet, and we're going to go to the Elizabethan understanding of what that meant. Right. And like we talked about in our episodes with King Lear, those psychiatrists were not just looking to diagnose Hamlet to diagnose Hamlet, but to prove that Shakespeare knew things about psychiatry in order to make their new field more legitimate. Exactly. So let's back up and examine an Elizabethan's understanding of what is Hamlet's antic disposition. According to C.T. Onion's A Shakespeare Glossary, antic as an adjective means fantastic, grotesque, ludicrous, and as a noun, it means grotesque entertainment or a burlesque entertainer. Antic was applied to Henry VIII's jester, William Somers. Quote, at last out comes William with his wit as the fool of the play does, with an antic look to please the beholders, unquote. Here's another description of a jester. Quote, his study is to coin bitter jests or to show antic motions or to sing body sonnets and ballads, unquote. In addition, a dancing skeleton was called an antic. The figure of death's companion is often depicted as a jester. So death, the antic, and death's fool went together. Therefore, Arthur McGee, who wrote the Elizabethan Hamlet, says that from all of this, antic did not mean mad in the sense of insane. So essentially what that means is that antic could be more performance or it could also be insane. Uh, we do see the use of antic in other plays of the period, which could prove that mad did sometimes mean insane, but it was applied to jesters. It was applied to fools. Yes, Elise, I see so your I have face. A question. Yes. And I'm not the first person to think about this. But one of the things we talked about in Stuff to Chew on is the apparent absence of a fool mm -hmm. and that there's really no comedic characters until the gravediggers. And I know we've talked about it as like, is it just because there was no fool at this time? We pretty much know who played Hamlet and that guy wasn't a fool. Mm -hmm. Hamlet was also rewritten multiple times. Right. Is there a world where Hamlet perhaps is a fool or pretending to be a fool in this play. Well, I'm glad you ask because my source expands upon this theory of Hamlet as the fool. Go on. Say more. So we've defined antic. The word antic was certainly in Shakespeare's dictionary. This is a fun fact about what was going on in Shakespeare's world. Playwright Robert Greens wrote a pamphlet called Greens Groats Worth of Wit. And in this pamphlet, he wrote of actors as, quote, these antics garnished in our colors, unquote. And this is the same one where he alluded to Shakespeare as an upstart crow, mm. unified with our feathers. Now, according to the scholar and authority on Shakespeare, M.C. Bradbrook, quote, country antics were used to present grotesque, derisory mimes against objects of social contempt, reducing their victims to animal level. Shakespeare as the upstart crow is wearing a feather costume of black, which was what the devil wore in the old craft plays. He pumped his feathers. So Shakespeare has become part of Green's private beast fable, at once an antic in a disgraceful show, unquote. So we have all of this evidence from the time period of antic being used outside of madness. It's not used to describe the insane. Yeah. It's the performers. It's the grotesque. Right. And especially like like I just said a few minutes ago, innocent was much more likely to be used for people who who actually had a 
mental or intellectual yeah. disability. Yeah. It was also, I didn't talk about this earlier, but it was also applied to fools, jesters, mm. and the like, who were often people with mental or intellectual disabilities. Yes. So here we're seeing the two worlds collide. So antic is performance. Innocent is performance. Mm-hmm. Neither of them are mad. Nope. They're not. So now that we've looked at antic, let's look at disposition. According to Onions, disposition meant natural constitution or temperament. So foolish temperament, grotesque temperament, melancholic melancholic temperament. So that's antic disposition, breaking it down. So the next step to ask ourselves is who to the Elizabethans would have possessed an antic disposition other than Hamlet? McGee's answer to that question leads up to a natural fool. Who should we turn to but Robert Armin, the comedic actor from Shakespeare's troupe after the departure of comedian Will Kemp? Armin wrote in his Fool Upon Fool or Six Sorts of Sots in 1600 about the difference between a natural fool and an artificial fool. I think that you mentioned this in our comedic tropes episode. Yes, I did talk Mm -hmm. about this book, and it is an early modern text, so it uses language that we now recognize as ableist. Yes. However, he does talk about what he calls the natural fool, somebody with an intellectual or mental disability. Mm -hmm. So the natural fool was mad, like you said, at least somebody with a mental or intellectual disability. And then the artificial fool is the fool that acted as though he were mad. In fact, doubt about the sanity of a fool seems to have enhanced the reputation of fools during Shakespeare's time. From the author of Tarleton's Jests from 1611, quote, Well, howsoever, either natural or artificial, or both, he was a mad merry companion, desired and loved of all, unquote. And Tarleton's Jests tells anecdotes about Queen Elizabeth's favorite jester, Richard Tarleton, thought to have been the Yorick in Hamlet's soliloquy. Mm. Mm-hmm. If we're not looking at Will Kemp, although Shakespeare could have taken Will Kemp and Tarleton. It could have been a combination. It could have been alighting them together. Exactly. And this play was written during Elizabeth's reign. So, right. Mm-hmm. So the distinction between the natural fool and the artificial fool goes back to the 12th century with the court fool. But the fool also became a part of the dramatic tradition. Some scholars see the fool's influence on the medieval and early modern character called the vice. Besides being comedic, the vice was also evil and satanic. The vice became associated with anti-Catholic satire in and beyond the reign of Henry VIII. So the vice, who was comedic, who was foolish, who was also connected to Satan and the devil, appears in revenge tragedies. So with all of this, it's generally accepted that the vice from the medieval plays lead us to the Elizabethan stage clown. And like just real quick, like medieval plays, they work a lot in um, grand themes like gods and concepts as characters instead of people. Medieval pageant wagons are a major form of medieval theater, which is the passion play, um, which is the final days of Jesus Jesus, done in kind of like a parade route. Mm -hmm. I'm completely oversimplifying this, but the character of like vice would be a biblical concept Mm -hmm. from these medieval plays that gets developed into you're saying the elizabethan fool yeah the elizabethan stage fool interesting Mm -hmm. okay so now i want to talk about clothing in the middle ages there was a considerable variety in fool clothes 
foxtails, coxcombs, long petticoats, and feathers. And the fool's dress was a badge of madness and servitude. Like there's certain clothing that is visual. Visual. We've talked about this too in like uh, how theater was made in early modern England, that there weren't like these expansive sets, but that a lot was communicated through costumes. Mm -hmm. And so there were specific visual cues. What I was saying is that on stage, a lot of the times Mad Men are shown disheveled or um, naked or nearly naked Mm -hmm. versus a clown who might wear motley. Exactly. Like a certified clown. Right. Those who wore a fool's insignia were certified to speak. They were considered certified fools. So Festy is a certified fool, much to Malvolio's displeasure. (laughs) He's allowed to jest. So would Lear's fool. Exactly. So would Touchstone. Because Jaquise mentions that Touchstone wears motley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Robert Armin fools. <laughs> Robert Armin fools. Exactly. English linguist John Minshow's dictionary from 1627 records that natural idiots wear feathers in their caps. In order to play the fool, Will Somers, Henry VIII's jester, wore a cap with a feather, a coxcomb. An illustration of Will Kemp from Kemp's Nine Days Wonder from 1600 shows him with a plume of feathers in his hat. Therefore, when Lavelle and Henry VIII speaks, quote, fool and feather, unquote, or Princess in Love's Labor's Lost asks, quote, what plume of feathers is he that indicted this letter, unquote, it had become proverbial that he has a feather in his cap was a roundabout way of saying he's a fool. In addition to this feather, they were also identifiable by petticoats or a lathe and sword or a wooden dagger, and Shakespeare seems to have favored the wooden sword because we get reference to either dagger of lath, wooden dagger, or vice's dagger in Twelfth Night, Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, and Henry V with Festy and Falstaff. Uh, those are the two that reference this dagger. By Shakespeare's time, the distinction between the vice of the medieval theater and the jester was blurred. In fact, Richard Tarleton the most famous jester to Queen Elizabeth was sometimes called a vice. And Hamlet references these fools. Shakespeare uses language that showcases the fool, the vice, and I'm going to list some of those off. Hamlet calls Claudius a vice of kings and a king of shreds and patches, a reference to Motley. Hamlet's first appearance to Ophelia after meeting the ghost describes him as disheveled, quote, doublet all unbraced, no hat, stockings fouled, etc., etc. So Hamlet wears madness in clothes like a special clown's getup worn by Tarleton, who, remember, was Elizabeth's jester. Mm -hmm. Let's continue dressing Hamlet. Hamlet is typically costumed in plain black clothes. Guerin, the jester of Margaret of Nevers, wore a cassock of black satin, and the jester of Henry IV also wore black taffeta. Also, when Hamlet is happy with the success of his play and maybe feels he is good enough to turn professional, his reference to, quote, a forest of feathers, unquote, is certainly to the costume of fool, jester, clown, vice. He also references wearing raised shoes, which are slashed shoes for decoration that have been popular in Henry VIII's reign. The raised shoes also have provincial roses on them, which we can't decipher from the text. However, contemporary plays refer to roses on shoes that belong to the devil. So perhaps slashed shoes with big rosettes belong to a comic devil, also a vice from the medieval theater. And last one is the line, quote, aha, come some music, come the recorders, unquote. Aha was an exclamation characteristic of the vice, 
and the recorders were played by clowns in the jig following a tragedy. So, Gilbert Murray, another historian, says what you had said, Elise, back a little while ago, that, quote, Shakespeare made his greatest tragic hero out of a fool transfigured, unquote. So there's all of this evidence that with antic disposition, his clothing, the medieval vice character as ancestor to the Elizabethan stage clown, Hamlet could be a fool. Hmm. But I want to, before I wrap this up, I want to go back to madness because we are talking about antic disposition. We've gone a little off the road with <laughs> fools. No, it's it's fascinating, though, because we were like, eh, it kind of takes place in this place, in this time period, like, he wouldn't have fools. And we definitely have this, like, obituary that says his great tragedian played this character but with all the different versions and the rewrites that this went through it's very possible that this character started as a fool mm -hmm. it is quite possible yeah or was a fool played by a great tragedian which is really an interesting theatrical choice that is an interesting choice especially considering the timing with the turnover of will kemp and robert Armin. right it's a uh, burbage's time to shine as a comedic genius <laughs> yeah or maybe just make the clown a sad clown. Maybe. Yeah, a melancholic clown. So that's antic disposition. Now I want to go back to madness. We talk about Hamlet. Is he putting on an antic disposition? Does he go mad? Is there a place where that madness starts? And I want to talk about how Shakespeare's audience viewed madness. Especially because we have this contrast between how Hamlet is publicly to how he is privately when he delivers soliloquies like to be or not to be to be or not to be is so compelling that mcgee argues it is difficult to maintain that in layman's terms hamlet is mad he is so concise he's so clear with his thoughts and the battle that he's going through with morality and mcgee argues that when we as contemporary audiences reflect that Hamlet is on the verge of stabbing himself or that he wants to, to commit suicide, uh, we can think in terms of manic depressive psychosis. We're not here to do that. I'm not going to expand on that. But then Mickey also counters that with Elizabethan terms. To an Elizabethan, this moral conflict can be a despair so deep that he is close to damning his soul for all eternity. If we think about this time period, like McGee goes on to provide an extensive list of examples of religious language that emphasizes the connections an Elizabethan audience would have made to Hamlet's battle with the soul. I won't discuss that. But in short, as we look at antic disposition, Hamlet enters the play in a state of despair and battles the consequences aligned with religion. In one, two, he is already contemplating suicide. In addition, Hamlet's friends and family know he is melancholic. Hamlet knows that he is melancholic, and he says as much in 2-2. And according to Timothy Bright's 1586 treatise on melancholy, Bright wrote, quote, The perturbations of melancholy are for the most part sad and fearful, and such as rise of them as distrust, doubt, diffidence, or despair, sometimes furious and sometimes merry in appearance, thought a kind of Sardonian and false laughter, unquote. Bright continues, Quote, of this are certain blasphemies suggested of the devil and laying of violent hands of themselves or upon others neither moved thereto by hate or malice or any occasion of revenge of the same sort is the despair and distrust of God's mercy and grace, Unquote. So this is a lot of information, Elise. As we look at antic disposition and madness, 
McGee argues that to a modern audience, Hamlet is speaking poetic statements and his thoughts are universally valid. When we take in what he's saying, we go, ah, yes, I can agree with that. However, to Shakespeare's audience, he is talking blasphemous nonsense. Mm. But we're not going to expand upon religion and Catholicism. We are going to dive into that another time. Very fair. But that is yeah. <laughs> antic disposition. Right. Because the thing that he's that Hamlet is grappling with, is, especially in To Be or Not To Be, is, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about truly mad characters and individuals were deemed innocent of the harm that they did to themselves and others. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what Hamlet is talking about in talking about and contemplating suicide is blasphemous. It is something that was a sin against God. And it's one of the reasons why Ophelia's death in the play, why she's able to have a Christian burial, the gravediggers tell us, is because Gertrude says that the branch just snapped underneath her. So it was an accident. She didn't actually intentionally. Yeah. Commit the die intentionally. Yeah. And die intentionally. But what Hamlet specifically is grappling with is that sin to do it or not to. And because he is putting on the antic disposition, if he did it, he would be guilty of the sin. Mm -hmm. If Ophelia actually did die by suicide, she is innocent of it because she was truly mad. Yeah, for Hamlet, he understands the gravity. And maybe that's the reason why I don't want to put my opinions of whether he's Mm -hmm. mad or not. But that might be evidence that Hamlet is not mad. He fully, in his soliloquies, understands the gravity of his actions. He understands what's going to happen if he does this, if he does that. And antic disposition is a device for him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. accomplish. I mean... It distracts people from what he's actually doing. mm -hmm. Yeah. But perhaps he, unlike Ophelia, is not actually mad. And the whole play is his antic disposition. But yeah. But after reading the case laid out for Hamlet being a fool, that then lends itself very easily to be that to them be like, oh, he is literally putting on this antic disposition the whole time. He is playing a fool. Yeah. To me, that sounds like for a modern production, antic disposition doesn't have to look like a caricature of a mental or intellectual disability. It can look like joking. It can look like someone a bit unhinged. Being our modern understanding of a fool instead of being something that is potentially harmful. Exactly. So I'm going to add to your stack of evidence (laughs) that Hamlet is not actually mad. And I want to do that by talking about how Shakespeare shows us who in his plays are truly mad. Mm. And in a way, I'm going to compare contrast Hamlet to Ophelia. Great. So Carol Thomas Neely in the chapter Reading the Language of Distraction from uh, her book, Distracted Subjects, Madness and Gender in Shakespeare and Early Modern Culture, says that plays essentially taught audience members how to recognize and diagnose madness. Quote, on stage and off, madness is diagnosed by observers, mm. first laypersons, and then in some cases, specialists, unquote. So think about for Hamlet, the gentleman who talks about Ophelia, the doctor and the waiting woman in Macbeth who yeah. talk about Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Also the doctor in Lear. Right, right. In those scenes, the audience participates with the onstage observers in distinguishing madness from sanity and... Neely writes, quote, from its lookalikes, mm. loss of grace, bewitchment, possession, or fraud, unquote. Okay. 
Shakespeare in particular shows madness, not just through costume, but through how the language is written for these mad characters. Madness is shown through fragmented, repetitive speech patterns that feature cultural references. Mm. So like Ophelia coming out and singing, Lady Macbeth having sections of her speech that harken back to things we saw earlier, conversations she had we didn't see. Poor Tom rattling off bits of literature from the time, like specifically Mm -hmm. about possession and the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These mad, quote unquote, mad speeches often include embedded songs or rhymes And they represent the fractured state of mind of the speaker. So again, madness is introduced before its first appearance. And audiences are given information specific to how madness is going to be portrayed and like how they should interpret that madness into something coherent to the plot. Hmm. So think about, again, the gentleman introducing Ophelia. He basically says that, While everything that she's saying is very disjointed, a careful listener can shape it into meaning. Mm. And then Ophelia goes on as she, quote, recites proverbs, formulas, tales, and songs that ritualize passages of transformation and loss. Lost love, lost chastity, and death, unquote. Mm -hmm. She also then, like, flips in between these sort of very social, formal greetings and leave takings. Like, good night, ladies, good night. God be at your table. God have mercy on his soul doing the act of the young woman at court that she's been supposed to be. Right. A bit performative about it. Well, not performative for her. For her, it's references to things that have happened to her. Mm -hmm. Her songs are also about truncated rites of passage and transformation. She talks about love and loss, um, sings of St. Valentine's Day and loss of virginity when, quote, a maid crosses a threshold both literal and psychological. Unquote. Mm-hmm. And um, other songs of hers mourn a death, and specifically one that has a burial that uh, is done in secret, much like Polonius's was. Mm-hmm. And then her flowers also like enact this sort of transition and dispersion of her life to others. Mm. So, in hearing all of that, the gentleman says, "Can listeners piece together what's happened to Ophelia?" Yeah. Can we logic it? I'm going to talk more in another episode about Ophelia and her madness Mm -hmm. and the things that she's saying and what they mean to the listener. Mm -hmm. But just to contrast that with Hamlet's feigned madness, the one time Hamlet's speech is disjoined like Ophelia's in the entire play is right after seeing the ghost when he kind of has to reenter the world of the living and interact with living people again and is in a bit of a state of shock, amazement, what have you. Yeah. Every other time he speaks, even when he's in his antic disposition, his speech is, quote, witty, savage, and characterized by non sequiturs and bizarre references. However, he almost never has the quoted fragmentary ritualized quality, unquote, that Ophelia does. Mm-hmm. He uses proverbs and puns, sure, but the audience, as well as Polonius, can understand that these are calculated logical jabs at or comments on the conversation that he's having yeah a word that comes to mind for me is playful yeah he's having a laugh exactly. at people or like a fool like a jester having a witty comeback to the person that they're talking to right like you were talking about earlier yeah thinking of festy and thinking of leers fool because we we've talked about them exactly mm-hmm. right Also, 
we're explicitly told by Hamlet and Claudius that Hamlet is not mad. So there's that. Versus, again, when madness is real for the character on stage, we are explicitly told that the character is mad before we see them. Instead with Hamlet, you know, we're told multiple times I can that he can turn this on and turn this off. Mm-hmm. And like you said, when he isn't actively feigning madness, we see a Hamlet who is introspective and melancholic. Yeah. And in a way, Ophelia acts out what Hamlet only plays at. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> um, so I think in summing up all of the evidence you have of the cultural understanding that Shakespeare's audience would have about the character of Vice, the idea of the melancholy fool. Maybe this is the first time we actually see a melancholy fool. Yeah. The natural versus the artificial fool, mm-hmm. the court jester. Revenge tragedy needs the protagonist to at least feign madness in order to delay the actual revenge at the center of the play. Mm-hmm. But especially when you contrast Hamlet to Ophelia, I think it's very clear that Hamlet is just pretending. Yeah, I think so too. And like you were saying, perhaps it's not even feigning madness, perhaps it's feigning foolness. Foolishness? Fool- yeah, foolishness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Also considering how fools dressed and how they appeared, this would have been a sign to, or this could have been a sign to an early modern audience that he is putting on this antic disposition and he's playing an artificial fool because they understood the difference between the natural mm-hmm. fool and the artificial fool. They would have had that knowledge and it's something that we just wouldn't pick up on today because we don't have natural fools. We don't have like certified fools. That's mm-hmm. that's outside of our cultural understanding. Right. I think it's fair to say that the characters in Hamlet might think that he's actually mad. Gertrude, Claudius, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, right? Like they may fall for the fraud. Right. But that doesn't mean that we as the audience have to. Like we as the audience need to know what's actually going on here. We know because we see him in soliloquy. We know. Just like in Othello, Iago comes forth and tells us exactly what he's doing or, you know, exactly what he plans to do and how we're going to see it fall out. Exactly. We get to see the lie. We hear the lie. Right. And the thriller of it, of these plays, is that will it happen or won't it happen? Mm -hmm. How is it going to happen if it does happen? Right. And to an early modern audience, that might be exciting enough. There might not need to be this added idea. Yeah, that was exciting enough. They loved revenge tragedies. Exactly. It was their Saw franchise, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Horror still popular for a reason people like to be scared and i think that this this Mm -hmm. sort of like revenge tragedies are they innocent are they not adds a layer to the will they kill or won't they be killed will they suffer eternal damnation or will they not suffer for the early modern audience that was like an extra layer i love that and expanding upon antic disposition and madness then from here like how does one perform hamlet and how does one telegraph certain aspects of Hamlet's um, state of mind or his temperament without relying on tropes that we see repetitively if Hamlet actually does go mad or mm-hmm. pretending, you know, acting madness. Right. And I did see a school tour Hamlet 
at the Globe Theater many years ago. And the Hamlet that I saw was joking around. He was jesting. And that was perfect for me. I saw that performance and went, this is Hamlet. I mean, he is melancholic, but he's yeah, not. But as we, like As we know from other Shakespeare plays, in fact, the play we get right after this, you can be a melancholy fool, right? Yeah. We get Jaquies right uh-huh. after this. We do get Jaquies. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean, we won't know what Shakespeare was thinking when he was writing this, but, you know, Hamlet might have been an experiment in a tragic hero that is a fool, or he might have been working on meshing the two worlds of a fool with a melancholic person. Or figuring out a way to have a fool in your play when at like every play has a fool, but you currently as a company don't have a fool. Yeah. You have to improvise so, a bit. You have to get creative. What are you going to do? There's times where Shakespeare the man is just a theater producer, you know? Exactly. And some of the great questions we have about his plays might just be he was a theater producer and he had to solve a problem to like put his play up. Right. And from what I know about Richard Burbage, he would have been an excellent actor to say, hey, I'm going to add this responsibility onto you. Even though you're a tragic leading man, I'm going to add this onto you because he was a fantastic actor. I don't know if I'm, you know, extrapolating or if I'm putting, you know, modern understandings of how we have, you know, actors like John Hamm, and he's known for playing Don Draper. And then he plays a character mm-hmm. in Kimmy Schmidt. And everyone's like, you were funny this whole time. You know, but right. Yeah. Or his early work, he's also comedic in. Yeah. yeah. So maybe Shakespeare was just filling a hole in his acting lineup. So I guess what we're trying to say is that one, Hamlet, we are leaning more towards Hamlet is pretending the whole time. Yes. That would have given the early modern audience enough to have that doubt of guilt, reasonable Mm -hmm. doubt of his guilt that would have allowed him to allow this play to be Mm -hmm. palatable. He's definitely pretending when we look at him in contrast to Ophelia. Ophelia. And then because of kind of the history of clowns and the depiction of uh, Hamlet, it's possible that he's a tragic clown, right? Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. And to an Elizabethan audience who doesn't really have a clue of what's going to happen at the end, that might have been... Oh, right. Hamlet's new. Hamlet's... Yeah. (laughs) So for an audience who doesn't know Hamlet, he could totally be feigning madness. And to an early modern audience, they're like, wait, is he or isn't he? Is he or isn't he? And then they find out at the end that he was faking it the whole time. But you can still have that layer of innocent guilt because they don't know the end Mm -hmm. of the play. Because they don't know the end of the play. And because in their cultural context, even pretending to be mad is a kind of madness that makes you free of guilt for what you do while you're pretending because we really can't tell. But for Hamlet... He was feigning madness, and there are a lot of consequences to his actions, and that's it. There are consequences to his actions. Yeah, but maybe the play's a little funnier than a lot of productions give it credit for. for. So I guess, you know, one of the challenges we identified in our Stuff to Chew On episode, maybe we have an answer for? Yeah, I think so, too. So I guess that's antic disposition, especially compared to what's actually madness. Mm -hmm. thank you for listening 
I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From All's Well That Ends Well, Act 2, Scene 1, said by LeFou. Oh, will you eat no grapes, my royal fox?